Just in and so good. Thousands of summer deals at your Nordstrom Rack Store. Save up to 60% on new arrivals from Vince, Rag & Bone, Adidas, Joe's, Marc Jacobs, and more. Great brands, great prices every day at Nordstrom Rack. But hurry for first dibs. Get your summer favorites up to 60% off at Nordstrom Rack today. Great brands, great prices. That's why you rack. Hear that? It's the call of the Crave. And when the Crave calls, you know what to do. Try the $5 Bacon Bundle. Because the only thing better than a White Castle slider is a White Castle slider topped with crispy hickory smoked bacon. So pick any two of either the Bacon Cheese Slider, 1921 Bacon Cheese Slider, or Chicken Bacon Ranch Slider. And also get a small fry for just $5 with the $5 Bacon Bundle. White Castle. Follow your crave. This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance and Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. The year is 2013. And Amy, is this the film where you will just let it go? And admit you love Disney films, the movie Frozen. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Unspooled. I am Amy Nicholson. And I am Paul Shear, and this is the podcast where we are endeavoring to find the 100 best films of all time. And when we do, we're sending them up into outer space. That's not a joke. It's not a bit. We will do it. But first, we need to find the 100 films. And Amy, right now, we are in the middle of our cold miniseries. What unites all these films? Well, coldness. And I think that's enough. I think we've been doing this show long enough that we can have <laughs> genres that are simply temperature based. And I am so excited to talk about <laughs> Frozen. But I also want to get into some of the conversation around Fargo, our episode from two weeks ago. So much uh, conversation around this movie. And, you know, you and I got into it uh, out there on the internet about Marge and what Marge was feeling with that scene with Mike Yanagida. And it was so interesting to see everyone's reaction to the idea that Marge would even be open to flirting and being open to flirting just means that she could even have that ability to flirt. That's what I kind of felt was really interesting about that conversation that you and I had um, online, which was like people look at Marge in a very high light, like she wouldn't do anything that isn't perfect. Somebody even wrote, well, pregnant women don't flirt. And I was so kind of just blown away by like, well, Marge is never, would never do anything to Norm. She loves him. I'm like, of course she does. That's not debated. I'm just saying she's a human being who just maybe wants to look nice, have a nice meal, feel represented or, uh, you know, 
elevated in some way. Here's a guy who called her because he saw her on TV, wanted to see her again. Just, you know, an ego fluff. Nothing more than that. And it was really interesting to see that people weren't even open to engaging that conversation. Okay. Well, first, I would say you're misrepresenting your argument a little bit as framed on the internet. You well, were like, because you misrepresented of, me. No, I was honest. And then you said I misrepresented you. And my, my, I said exactly what you said. I, no, what you I didn't. said to the world was I said, you know, in fact, should I even so read So many people defended what I said against this tweet. I can't believe I was trying to get you off the hook by not throwing you under the bus and saying you misrepresented me by saying I that you wanted not. to have an affair. I said, is, I said have an affair or was at least open to the idea of a Radisson flirtation. I never I said open. have an affair. I never said that's you. I said that she was down to flirt. You said affair. I've never I never thought there was infidelity. I never thought there was anything. All I said was. I'm I not think- saying that you thought she actually boned him, but you, I feel like, said in our episode that she it crossed her I mind. I most certainly it did crossed, not. No. It, it I crossed just her she mind. Down you said that flirt. she was like restless with her life back home. We that have she was it like, on tape. Maybe I'm a little bored. Yeah. I so don't just, remember how it went. I mean, we, the, why, why are we debating something that is literally everyone that defended me <laughs> against your, it was misrepresented. All I was saying it, was that I think that she approached that moment. And again, we don't have to debate something that we already have said. It was slightly taken out of context. I never thought she was open to an oh affair. I think because I thought that there was something really interesting that people wouldn't even engage that idea that she would be down to flirt. And I felt there was such a puritanical viewpoint of like what flirting was and how flirting was like put together with infidelity. Right. And 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 it wasn't like she's going there to have a secret meeting and fuck this guy or even wanted to fuck this guy. I think that what she wanted to do was maybe in this idea of like experiencing the big city and seeing this guy who had seen her on TV, just, you know, feel good. She's at a crossroads in her life, in this moment in her life where she's about to have a baby. She's about 40 years old, which is a big deal, I think. And I think a very important thing that we didn't really talk about in Fargo, like that age of having a baby. Like at 40, that's a, that is a different type of baby. It's not their second kid, it's their first kid. And what that means, it means that she's going to, does this hold her back? Did she, is she looking at the big city as like what she could have had? Like, there's just a lot, I think, emotionally going on in her mind. That doesn't mean anything about her relationship with Norm. It's just sort of like her going through, I want to look nice. I want to feel nice. I want someone to pay attention to me in a different way instead of just buying me food that I want. But see, I still That's don't what flirting think, is. Yes, but I still, I still don't think that's in the movie. I really don't. I, I, and you almost had me in our episode convinced that Fargo was not actually the story of like, you know, how murders go awry and how like people cannot actually like formulate the plans that seem so easy to do in like movies that you were convincing me that Fargo was about a pregnant cop deciding that she liked her small town. You almost had me there. And I was like, I don't think so. I think you're I think you're snowballing me into agreeing with you on this. And so I was glad that the Internet Agreed that there is no sense of like her restlessness at home leading her to take this like, Only dinner. Only from prominent film critics. A, c- a couple that I respect A couple very much. respectable film critics who had uh, pretty much the same exact reading that I had. Uh, now, two, I will two, also... Two smart critics and then yes. 
a tidal wave of other smart critics disagreeing with you. Uh, a tidal wave? A tidal wave. Uh, name one. No, a bunch Alice of internet. Alice April Wolf. Uh, if I and look at and my by mentions... the way, when I talked to yeah. April Wolf and Eva Faye, uh, <laughs> I, they all were like, oh, actually, I see what you're saying because it was misrepresented. It, it was... was. It was. And people go, oh, now I see what you're saying. You're Everyone saying if said I just that. throw out the word affair that nobody will even listen to the rest of my sentence? Absolutely like, not. If I was because like... uh, the Internet is such a reaction machine. They're saying a f- they're seeing affair and they're like, no, no, she's pure. And it's like and I thought really like I, I will I will read the the this is from Keith Phipps, who used to be at the Dissolve. You know, he talked about this idea of that scene being a parallel story point, which is Marge is at enormous life change with the arrival of her child. And she's questioning, did she make the right decisions? Which I think is a very normal thing to do when you are about ready to have a baby, because you're you're bracing for a life change that you don't even know what it will be. Um, And so she is a great detective. She's fast. She's instinctive. She's, you know, she's canny. She uses the codes of Minnesota nice to cut through Jerry's defenses and follows clues that others miss. So what is she doing in Brainerd? In some respects, uh, settling. Fargo is a story about greed and discontent. And the film is filled with characters who always want more than they have and will do what it takes to get it. Marge isn't one of those people, but that doesn't mean that she's immune to the same instincts. Um, She never tells her husband she's meeting Mike. She makes herself up for their meeting. She checks her hair as she walks in the door. She looks nervous uh, the way that she never does when interviewing suspects or chasing down bad guys. I'm not suggesting she enters the restaurant prepared to embark on a torrid affair with Mike, but she at least wants to keep the meeting to herself and maybe just contemplate paths not taken while reconnecting with someone who left Brainerd for the relatively big city. Um, And that to me was really interesting. And, And he goes on to say like that speech at the end, it's a beautiful day speech. You know, she's touched by this urge to want what she doesn't have. Um, and when she delivers that that message, she's telling herself, like, look, you know, I, I this is pretty good. That's why that last moment in bed, she's like, we're doing pretty good, right? And, you know, it lies ahead when she has this baby. There's no they, question in the way she says it. It's declarative. We're doing pretty good. Yes. Okay. I'm, of course. But I mean, but that's like, I think that that actually, why is that the last line of the movie? Because... It's her journey as much as anyone else's. And I think that to say like that scene is only there for her to realize that people lie undercuts her as a detective. Like people are like, no, she needs to understand that people lie. It's like, motherfucker, she's a great detective. She doesn't need to like understand. Oh, yeah, people lie, too. That makes her dumb as shit. Like, yes, I understand that. What I think is going on is that scene allows her to be like, oh, right. People can be a little bit more duplicitous than I'm used to dealing with. But also I'm having these like I think it allows her to be a part of this thing of wanting more and wanting something. And I think what Mike wants from her in that is to give her like get her grief. I think what Jerry wants is to get her to the back off. I think what she wants is just to feel like she made the right choice. Everybody wants something. They're not just saying it. Anyway, that's my point on that. Not nothing more, nothing about cheating, nothing about Mike is hot. Like people are like, well, he sits next to her and she pushes him away. I'm like, it doesn't have anything to do with the actual scene. It's the buildup to that meeting. And the minute she sees him and it all falls apart. Okay. Listen, I'll say a few things. One, I admire Keith Phipps's reading because I do think it's interesting to add a reading to a film, you know, and add a layer of it. But I don't think that in this case, this reading, while like 
well-reasoned, well-argumented. I don't really think deep down at the end of the day, it's in the film. Just because we don't see her tell her husband that she went to the Rassin doesn't mean she didn't tell him that they went to the Rassin. We don't see them talk about almost anything besides food. I don't take much stock from the fact that we don't on camera waste 30 seconds with a conversation of her telling him that she went to the Rassin. And also, just as a girl, like, yeah, you fluff your hair when you enter a restaurant, you wear lipstick, you try to look nice for everybody, no matter if you're meeting like your great aunt, your group of best friends or some dude from high school. So I don't read that much into, into that scene either. I think you're right in one area. I think the reading of that scene is her discovering people lie is overblown because I think from the police work we see her do before then, she's already well aware at like piercing through lies. I kind of think that she's onto William H. Macy basically from the first time she meets him and doesn't need a reminder to even go back and question him. I think she's just waiting to give him more rope to hang himself, you know, getting some more pieces of evidence. So I don't buy that this is the scene that teaches her to be a detective. I think you're right. That is a little, that's flat. And I think undermining. However... I think that she is there in this film just solely as the embodiment of reassurance, you know, not as a person going through any sort of questions of her life or aspiring to more, but just as a person who makes you feel that at the end of the day, the world is a very good and stable place because there are margins in the world. I think that that element that she brings to the film is kind of why people react in like a aghast, shocked way. Like, how dare you think that like my stable mommy might be doing anything other than like reassuring me that things are fine. I will say, if I didn't log out of Twitter like five and a half days of a week, I would log in right now to like read my quotes that prove that many, many, many more people who are brilliant film critics also agree with me. Um, But that said, the most important people in my world did agree with me. And that is my aunt and uncle. Um, They live in San Diego. They are, I swear, the absolute hands down most adorable married couple you have ever seen in your life. Holding hands still married for like three decades, my role models. And they just sent me a one sentence email out of the blue the day after our episode came out. They just said, we are with you. I did not like the Gunderson's marriage, the aunt and uncle. Bless you. They You're know what a good marriage looks like. You're saying two different things. You realize that. No, I'm not. I'm not. You are. You're saying Marge is perfect because she's so content. And then you're saying she has an awful marriage. You are saying can, two okay. polar different things. Content you're, and like, stable are, are different. So, but that, but, that marriage being terrible means that then that gives all the credence to me. So thank you, aunt and uncle, for agreeing with me, because that's exactly what I'm <laughs> saying is that they're like they're I don't think that she has thinks she has a terrible marriage, but that would re, that would read into my reading. I think you should we should edit that out of the podcast because you should not be <laughs> uh, associating with two different readings. That is not fair. Even in the episode, I said to myself. I don't like their marriage, but is put forth in this movie as stability, even though I would find it boring to do nothing but talk about Arby's and bacon. Okay. Okay. Uh, Anyways, well, look, Amy, thank you to my aunt and uncle, the greatest film critics ever. I will keep I, her doing your Criterion uh, Collection film subscription because I love, I love you guys. And I love I, movies with you. And I appreciate your aunt and uncle getting on my side and you undercutting <laughs> your whole point. Now, I will say this. Uh, before we get into the episode, we do have a new Fargo shirt in their T Public store. So check it out. It'll be a surprise for you. It is definitely uh, around this conversation. Uh, so uh, I'll let you check that out at tpublic.com. Uh, just type in unspooled and you'll see what we have there. And it could be on a mug. It could be a sticker. It could be whatever. And finally, Amy, I will say this. Could it uh, be a sexy pair of Marge Gunderson underpants? I mean, look, it's not above T Public to, you know, manufacture some nice underpants. So like, mm-hmm. let's get them out there. Um, I will say this. I... Also went on my Scream binge and I watched all the Scream movies except for the new one, Scream 5. Um, 
And uh, I thought it was very interesting. I thought it was very interesting to go back and watch them. And I found myself uh, not enjoying number two as much as I remembered liking number two. And I'm really wrestling with number two in the sense that it feels so different than number one. I watched them all pretty much night after night after night, and sometimes even two in one night. Tonally, it loses a lot of what I think makes Scream 1 so interesting. And, and exactly what you said is caring about these characters. Well, I don't care about any of those characters in that movie, you know, especially like Omar Epps and Jada Pinkett who open up the film, who I think are doing a great job in it, but it doesn't immediately pull you in the same way. It like it's commenting on screen movies being a big and a hit. And there's, there's a lot going on in that scene, but I think what that movie does poorly is it elevates the meta. And I don't think it's actually doing much in the meta. I mean, it is, and it isn't, but it takes away all the stuff that I think Wes Craven was so intent on putting in the first one, which grounded it. And maybe it leaned more into a comedy. I don't know. And can, and, in watching three and four, I found the performances to be better and more grounded, but not necessarily the same movie as one, which is not a bad thing. Devin said it really well. Like the third one's like a, a Gail Weathers mystery, which I'm not against. It's just not fully a screen movie. And then the fourth one is kind of the closest to the first one in the sense of like it it's kind of putting together you know, the the mythology. I don't know. It's a really interesting watch to watch all four of them. I'm very excited to see five. I've heard five is great. I'm going to do that. I'm going to do that. I'm going to watch two, three, and four in time for five. But I don't know when I'm going to get to watch five, so I'm putting it off. All right. Well, all of this aside, this is a very long open, but well worth it. Uh, Amy, let's let go of our issues right now and talk about Frozen. May we unspoil it. The year is 2013. Edward Snowden leaks information about the NSA's secret internet and cell phone data gathering program. The U.S. federal government enters a 17-day shutdown. Twitter goes public and launches uh, the micro video app Vine, which we sorely miss. Um, The Boston bombing happens during the marathon, uh, killing three and injuring 280. The PlayStation 4, Xbox One, Apple iPhone 5C and 5S are released, and the hot films of the year are... The Great Gatsby, American Hustle, Wolf of Wall Street, and today's film, Frozen. Amy, who's in it, what's it about, and what was on the radio? Frozen. It is written and directed by Jennifer Lee and Chris Buck. Uh, It is the story of two Nordic sisters. You've got Elsa, voiced by Dana Menzel, and Anna, voiced by Kristen Bell, who get torn apart from their friendship as children when their parents decide to take Elsa and, like, isolate and hide her because she secretly has the power to control ice and snow and can accidentally zap people in the brain or the heart with her ice powers. This means both sisters grow up in this palace really lonely. You know, Elsa learns to rely on nobody else because she's alone, while Anna is left really desperate for connection. Years pass, and on Anna's coronation day, Anna gets impulse engaged to a prince, which makes Elsa panic. And then when Elsa panics, she freezes the kingdom. She runs off to live by herself in, like, this sick-ass ice palace where she finally gets to wear makeup and strut around in ice high heels. Let it go, girl. And then, of course, in a bunch of chase, chase, and hugs, Anna sits after her with like an ice bro named Kristoff, a reindeer named Sven, a snowman named Olaf, and they just gotta thaw Elsa's heart with love. Take a listen. I don't even know what love is. That's okay. I do. Love is 
putting someone else's needs before yours, like, you know, how Kristoff brought you back here to Hans and left you forever. Kristoff loves me? Wow, you really don't know anything about love, do you? Olaf, you're melting. Some people are worth melting for. Frozen came out on November 27th, 2013 and made almost $1.3 billion. That is enough to place it at the top of the highest grossing animated films of all time. The top of the peak where it did not stay forever because then it made Frozen 2, which made even more money. Uh, And then they both were topped by like the 2019 animated-ish Lion King because there's absolutely no accounting for taste. However... What was in the zeitgeist that weekend of November 23rd, 2013, when Frozen came out and really shook up the animated landscape and shook up the lives of parents everywhere? Well, the number one song on the charts could not be more perfect. A, it's by a teenager. B, it's about being a queen. And C, it is about not caring what anyone else thinks. It is Royals by Lord. And we'll never be Frozen itself had such a moment on the charts that the album of Frozen managed to kick Beyonce off of the number one spot. Do you remember around this time that there was a viral video that came out um, from a little kid named Brody Chris? No. Okay. Brody Chris. I was trying to look for other ways that connect like Lord and Frozen in case I missed something. And I stumbled across, I would say, like a sort of now forgotten viral video that was popular for the time. It was a bar mitzvah invitation made by this kid, Brody Chris, who did it in the form of a music video where it's like him singing all of these songs about his bar mitzvah. Like, here, this is how it starts. Because I'm Jewish. I belong if you feel like Old Testament is the truth. Because I'm Jewish. I belong if you're 13. That means you're no longer. You get the gist. He's doing like all the top hits of of that year. Like, what is everybody listening to but making it about his bar mitzvah? And at one point, he actually transitions from singing Lord to singing Frozen. jokes here i just always wanted to try that wow there it is there it is you found the connection i love it i did thank you brody crazy i'm gonna let brody Chris get the last word in his video rsvp to my party it's all about me everybody get up brody Chris. i don't know where you are today but thank you thank you for being a part of this episode let's get into it we talked about this last week um you're gonna give frozen a second shot uh, Frozen came out before I had kids. Uh, I remember seeing it in the theater with my very pregnant wife, and I loved it. I I have no bones to pick with Frozen. Um, it was to me like seeing a great 
Broadway musical. And I mean that in the in the best sense of the word. It the songs are fantastic. The story is simple. Well, when I saw it in 2013, I had that same reaction, but in a negative way. Mm-hmm. I saw Frozen and I was like, oh, it's like a Broadway musical. But in a way where like all the songs just felt like they were meant to be sung on Broadway. You know, it's a musical where like the songs are big. The songs are anthemic. They're all about like your emotions or how to be a better person with one exception. That is the musical that number that happens to be my favorite in the whole song. And they felt like songs that were designed basically to be kind of like what Disney done with The Lion King. Like here we've got this like one cartoon and now we want to take it and make it like gigantic and put it here and do it in all these forms and make it a Broadway thing. It felt like product. I think the songs felt so big and so glossy that I could see the billion dollars of toy sales coming off of it in a way that really chilled me. Because I think maybe this is just because of like the age I was when they came out. I'm not anti-Disney as a whole, but I do really admire the Disney movies of like the late 80s, early 90s. The ones that like I would have had on like VHS tapes. Like you take, say, the soundtrack of The Little Mermaid. And the variation of songs on that album are fantastic. You know, you've got like the under the sea, you've got the part of your world, you've got the big anthem, but you've got playful ones. You've got the song in the kitchen. There's like big numbers, little numbers, throwaway numbers. You've got Ursula, Poor Unfortunate Souls. All of the songs in Little Mermaid to me sound very distinct. You know, they have like, they exist in their moment in the film. They have a presence and they feel really relevant and like grounded to that scene, grounded to that character. And something in Frozen, it felt more like it was designed to be sung on stage. It didn't feel like it belonged to the movie. It felt like it belonged to show business and making tons of money. It felt colder to me, literally colder. And And you are, just correct me if I'm wrong, a big fan of Rock of Ages. I will say that I'm a big fan of the one duet in Rock of Ages. I want to know what love is between Melon Ackerman and Tom Cruise. I think that that in the movie is a wonderful number. Underrated. Okay. Okay, fine. Yes, I like the circus musical, if that's what you're getting to. Yes, I like The Greatest Showman, but I think all of the songs of The Greatest Showman are actually very distinct. I think that each one is memorable, has its own type of hook. When I think of the songs in Frozen, they're just like, ba-ba-ba, ba-ba-ba, and they're very well, big. It's kind of like how you listen to pop music nowadays. Have you listened to, like, mixtapes of everybody who's playing at Coachella? Everybody I mean, who's yeah. playing at Coachella is like, you're a good person, I believe in you, believe in yourself. I just find that kind of music so tedious, and Frozen is that type of music. So your 2021 watch, you're still feeling the same way. Well, I don't hate it as much, but I still think it's a weak film. I, th- I still think it's like, it, to me, it's like, it's entertainment and not art. And I would say that like Beauty and the Beast and the Little Mermaid are art. But to me, this is just like fun. It's there for like ideas and jokes and comic relief. And I don't feel like it holds together that much as a film. It's just like a diversion, a very big popular diversion. It's interesting because I think a lot of people out there might say that Tangled is a better film. Um, It doesn't have the resonance with the songs, but I think people really love that story and the the performances in that story. Um, And it felt like that was quickly usurped and that movie was banished because Frozen just ate up all the rest of the air there. And and I want to go back to what you were saying about this era of Disney films, which was Beauty and the Beast, Little Mermaid, Aladdin, Lion King, like those four I always put together as this moment where, you know, that's a sweet spot for me. I have all those soundtracks or I had all those soundtracks. I have them all on CD and I love listening to them. And they're these fun, big songs. All of them become musicals on Broadway and transition 
beautifully to a Broadway musical. I think Little Mermaid had a shorter run, but I'm pretty positive Little Mermaid was on Broadway. If not, it was at least a live stage show at Disneyland, which is kind of the same budget as a Broadway show. I mean, my God, have you seen the Frozen show at Disneyland? It is insane. It is. Is it? A, it is a full on Broadway production. It blew my mind. It's in a beautiful theater in uh, California Adventure. And I went in there thinking, okay, we're just going to get air conditioning. And I was like, holy shit, we just saw like a, like a 60 minute Broadway musical. It was pretty impressive. But all that being said, I think that the big Disney musicals make a great transition to Broadway. And so I have an issue slightly with the idea being like those songs are less Broadway than these songs. I think well, I think like I think I don't think Lion King was written to be Broadway. I think it became Broadway. It was adapted to Broadway. I think Frozen was written to be Broadway. And I feel like I hear it in the music. I mean, because even think about it, like before Frozen comes out, you have this moment with um, Wicked, you know, Frozen, Wicked. It feels like Frozen is like Disney's version of making a Wicked. Like, how can we capitalize on that audience? I, I definitely don't disagree with that. Let me just say that. I think the music in Lion King is very Broadway musical. I think what we are now remembering of Lion King is what Julie Taymor did to it on stage, which took those songs, took the idea of what you could do with a stage show and elevated it in a way where that feels completely unique, where other Disney musicals feel a little bit, you know, more or less just like, hey, we're going to do this movie on stage. And I say that because the Lion King music was, you know, written by Tim Rice. And, you know, he worked with Alan Menken on Aladdin. And, you know, and he had all, you know, he had all that same energy, right? Like it, this is what Disney does. And I don't think there's anything bad to that. Um, you know, Tim Rice, though, is making Broadway-esque musical numbers. And I think that those are, they're incredibly catchy. They are, I think they're earworms in the best possible way. You yeah, know, but, he, but there's a yeah. diversity to them in inside this the musical. You know what I mean? That to me, that's like really where the well, crux is. Well, this, but this is what I'm going to get to. I think the lack of characters in Frozen make the music have a lack of diversity, right? The you really are having these two sisters, and they're the crux of the entire thing. And so when you do have a song by like Olaf or by those like rock troll people, um, it feels very different. But I know from the musicality of it, like we're not exploring the world as much as I think those other Disney musicals go. Like they're, they're going from the streets to palaces. They're going from the jungles of Africa to the, a very like stereotypical evil person. And I would argue that something in Frozen is a little bit more grounded except for the snowman and the rock creatures uh, and of course the snow powers. But I'm saying that there is something about, it's smaller. It's a much smaller movie. Yeah, I, I hear that. It's a smaller movie. It's focused solely on emotion. And I think it's designed to kind of capitalize on the fact that I guess I feel like we're in such a stuck moment of music where pretty much everything still tends to be about like self-empowerment in a way that I find really tedious. This is going to sound insane. This is, I, this is like such an extreme, crazy example, but it's always one that goes like right into my mind at the beginning. I think about the music that I liked on MTV in the 90s and how it 
Aerosmith was like writing songs about child abuse with like Janie's got a gun and like mm-hmm. it runaway train songs about like children running away. Like there were songs about like, yes, there was tons of songs about like, I want to party, but there were songs about stuff and things and external, external ideas. Do you know what I mean? Like yeah, no, there, I, people I, wrote I, yes. songs that weren't always just like navel gazing. And I feel like the songs here are so navel gazing and we're in such a moment mm. of being navel gazing. I, I, I don't know. know. I don't like like listening to songs that tell you that you're a good person over and over again because it feels really childish to me. But I feel like every time I turn on the radio, it's all songs about like, you're a good person, girl. You can get it. And like, that's what Frozen is to me. It's just the same, samey, sameness. And I'm so but I can't tired compare, of it. I can't compare Soul Asylum to like Little Mermaid, like yes, of course, Soul Asylum is doing Runaway Train, but but I I guess what I think about that is like if Scar is singing a song um, about being evil, or if Ursula is doing the same thing, they're so classically overtly evil that both songs, the Scar and the Ursula song, have a similar. Idea. It's like, oh, here's our evil song. And I think what but I, no, I feel but, like, but, but yeah. no, I mean, like, really think about Ursula's song. You poor, unfortunate soul. She's not singing about herself. She's singing about other people. It's externalized. She, well, it, it is kind of the runaway train. You know, look at this. Look at this tragic lives that other people are listening. It's not so self-obsessed. But I guess what I think about this movie is. In many ways, this is the most progressive Disney movie because it's dealing with not a witch that's trying to get you or an uncle who's trying to kill you. In many ways, this is a story about acceptance. It's a story, I think, and maybe I'm being bold in saying this, but about like mental health and accepting yourself. It's Disney and and therapy. It's Disney's gone to therapy to see what was wrong with princess stories. And I think they do a great job of breaking down some of the things that we're used to seeing, right? Disney movies, you're used to seeing, uh, oh, you're different. We're going to lock you away in a tower. The parents here are like, you're different. We're going to protect you. They do it badly, but they prote- they stay with the daughter until they are killed in that boating accident. Although I she talk- is still locked in a, in a, in a, well, maybe a second story. I, but I yes. do, yes. And, and she is still treated like a Frankenstein monster chased out of town. But that moment, but that moment, well, she just created something spectacularly insane. Uh, So I think there is a moment of that. But I I think that like they're protecting their other daughter's life. Like she when she gets healed in the beginning by those troll monsters, um, they I love that idea. And I want to ask you this. Would you take that deal to be left with the memories, but not the specifics like I like this person, but I don't have no memory of why I like this person. But that was a really like tragic and beautiful way to connect these two characters. I like it. I mean, I think that is a beautiful idea that, you know, when you read about the the creation of the story, they kind of happened upon that idea not to make a point about mm-hmm. like the separation of like memories and joy, but just because they're trying to figure out any way around getting through these plot holes. And they're like, okay, okay, what if we just, we're Disney, it's a magic movie. We can announce that she'll remember like, only had that she loved her sister and not that they used to do magic together. And we could just get away with that, which I appreciate. I like that there are moments in this movie where they announce magical things, but don't have to bother getting into the specifics. You know, it gets boring hearing that. The same thing with like, you know, is Elsa cursed or was she born with the powers? And they're like born with it. And then it just moves on. I'm like, great. That's right. fine by me. I, I mean, I would say when it comes to my friends, 
I don't always have a memory of why I love them because it was my 20s and we were doing a lot of stupid stuff, but I do know that I love them quite deeply. And I think there's something really interesting about making a movie that's commenting on certain things in the Disney world without making it meta. And I think a perfect example of this, I've watched this over break, was Wreck-It Ralph 2. Um, I love Wreck-It Ralph 1. Also, uh, Jennifer Lee was involved in that film. I know it's a little bit murky, right? So what like, what do you know about that story? Yeah, like she helps shepherd Wreck-It Ralph into existence as a writer. And it's like her work on Wreck-It Ralph that gets her get promoted to co-director on Frozen, coming onto the project. And because she's co-director, then getting announced as like the first female director of a Disney movie, which in 2013 was like a big deal. Like, ta-da, Jennifer yeah. Lee. Here, we're Disney, we're progressive. That's why this is... To the point I think you're leading to, this is Disney's progressive movie. I I definitely agree that there are a lot of progressive things here. And I don't think it's hammered over the head. I think it's a lot more subtle. And what I was saying was like Wreck-It Ralph 2 is less subtle. Like they have that whole sequence where Sarah Silverman's character goes in and meets all the princesses. And they all kind of comment on their lives. and, And here they just make these changes that, and they comment on things for example, the proposal that they uh, meet, they immediately fall in love, they're going to get married. And without going like wink, wink, they just do it, which is something we've grown to expect in a Disney movie that you immediately fall in love. You find your partner, you finish each other's sentences or sandwiches and uh, and you and then you live happily ever after. And they deconstruct that. And this is a story not about romance. It's a story about sisters. And there's another story here. And it's like the men take a little bit of a back seat. Like, yes, they're involved, but it's not a story about falling in love with a man, you know, at, at its core. Or there's the misdirect. It lets you think it's a movie about yes. falling in love with a man and then thinking that maybe that man's wrong for you, but maybe this other man is right for you. And then pulling the rug out. And then in the last second being like, we're actually about sisters. Uh, I think that that's what makes this movie resonate uh, because it deconstructs without being meta. We talked about Scream last week, which I think walks that line of still being scary, but being funny. This does a Disney movie, but also brings it into a more yeah progressive point of view. Well, I think it does get meta, though. I mean... I think it I think it kind of plays it both ways. Like, you're right. They have this whirlwind meet cute, you know, her and the prince. They're dancing around. They have that song about, you know, sandwiches. And like, if you're like listening closely, you're kind of having that feeling of like, uh, are the lyrics matching up with actually the emotions here? Like, are they really finishing each other's sandwiches, as you said? And I think that's like, I think that's very clever songwriting. But I think it does get meta when a couple of scenes later, you have her run into Kristoff, who is that person who kind of, takes that plot line and puts the sled brakes on and is like, you just got engaged to a person you just met? So uh, tell me, what made the queen go all ice crazy? Oh, well, it was all my fault. I, I got engaged, but then she freaked out because I'd only just met him, you know, that day. And she said she wouldn't bless the marriage. Wait. And- You got engaged to someone you just met that day? Yeah, anyway, I got mad, and so she got mad, and then she tried to walk away, and I grabbed her glove. Hang on. You mean to tell me you got engaged to someone you just met that day? Yes, pay attention. It I mean that that it it, it's almost like I keep feeling weird. I feel I feel like I always keep talking about this movie. But it is a bit cabinet of, of Dr. Caligari. Like the movie is letting you know that you as an audience have been pulled in one direction. You're going along with its momentum. And should you trust your own instincts? Should you trust the film? 
And I respect well, that. Yeah. I do and respect I think, that turn. But I do think it's not said in a way that is inorganic to that character. If I was to tell you, and I wasn't married and didn't have kids, because then it would be a much more shocking thing. I just met this girl last night and we're getting married. You'd be like, wait, you're getting married? Like, you would ask that question. And I think that's why I like it. Not like, oh, wait a second. So you're telling me the day you get out of the, the, the castle, you meet this guy who doesn't even think, like, it's not overdoing it. And I guess you're right. Like, it is, I mean, it is meta, but I think it's the writers being meta, not the characters being meta. So, oh, that's you know, whatever. True. It's yeah. not like Jamie Foxx being like, this is the moment where you tell me that you're marrying this guy that right. you just met. I mean, I guess that is the conversation we had about all the screwball movies of the 30s. Like, I just met you. Let's get married right now. Right. And this is, and I think, you know, this movie shepherds in a new era for Disney in many respects. I don't know if it's continued it, but I think every decade, forget about Pixar, because Pixar's off doing its own thing and they are amazing. And and I think in many respects, Disney is often in the shadow of Pixar now, where it used to be the other way around. It is like, well, what are we making? And And so when you find a movie... Uh, like Frozen that connects in this way. And I think Wreck-It Ralph did too. Um, but Frozen, I think, is a lot more about where they want to be going. Like, how do we want to tell these progressive stories? How do we want to, like, incorporate? Like, how do we open up our world a little bit more? And I think what you've been seeing now is, like, the Frozen effect in all these movies. Like, uh, like very recently with Encanto. And, you know, there are these movies. Moana, you know, they're opening up their sphere. They're not just telling the same traditional princess stories. They can tell these really beautiful stories about empowered women who are doing interesting things, but they're not the cookie cutter mold that I think Disney had been making for a really long time. Well, yeah, uh, and, but I think that puts Frozen in kind of like a weird transitional fossil record place, which is, well, I, I think it off, Frozen, right? yeah, it kicks it off. And I think it's the most overt and loud about it in a way that I find kind of clumsy. Like to me, Frozen is one of those movies that when I watch it, I don't so much feel like I'm watching a movie as I feel like I'm reading the essays that the movie wants you to write about the movie afterwards. It's the same way that I felt about watching the new Candyman or watching like Zola. You're watching a film that's, you know, announcing to you why it's important as it's doing it in a way that takes me out but of it. That, Whereas but I that's would say like Moana, unfair. Well, no, but it's okay. not. Like, I would say Moana actually makes it work. Moana feels like a film. I am, like, sucked into, like, the ship scenes and the rocking of the ocean. And it, I find Moana to be a really emotional film that does so much without having to draw neon arrows to itself in the same way. Well, but here's what I'll say about that. And I, I, I think Encanto goes right next to Moana on this. It's the person who breaks down the door first that makes the essays possible. I don't think that Jennifer Lee said, I am going to subvert a Disney film. But I think as she went about writing it, she made some different choices. So just because it's different, the first one is always going to be critiqued the most. I think, unfortunately, the first person through the door is always going to have the think piece, right? Because they're changing the game. And whether or not that's conscious or unconscious, um, Sometimes people get into position of power and it seems like Jennifer gets into position of power here where she can actually make a change and she makes a change. And it's not because she wants to make a change just to make a change. It's like, I want to tell this story that I think is more real, but you're right. Then it becomes the think piece. Is it too progressive? Is it 
Is it wearing itself on its sleeve? And the truth is, is like, it's just somebody who wanted to make something and everyone, I think, got excited by that and it built and it built and it built. If this movie didn't capture the imagination, there wouldn't be think pieces about it. This movie didn't work. But see, I can't totally agree with that because I feel like Disney, paramount among all other studios, has figured out how to use think pieces as marketing. I mean, think about the number of times a Disney film, a Marvel film under the umbrella has come out where they're like, and it's the first gay character represented. And it's like two characters in the background who walk by like looking at each other and smiling. You know, they they use positivity and consciousness as tools for self-promotion. And I think that is why I don't have like a ton of patience. I don't think this movie accidentally got think pieces. I think this movie wanted the think pieces, was went after them and w- used it as a way of selling tickets. I mean, I think it worked on two ways. Like it marketed itself as a snowman Olaf movie so that like boys would feel free coming to the theater on opening weekend. It didn't market itself as a sister story, but it knew very well that that was going to be the thing that people would talk about and that it would continue to kind of make them look good. Like I, I find that Disney doesn't like to just do the work of making a more inclusive world. They really want you to like buy their dress as a thank you. And I think that's irritating. (sighs) I don't know if I fully agree with that because what I think this movie does is it opens a door for new stories. And if this movie just did that and there were a bunch of think pieces and that was that, then I'd be like, you're right. They just monopolized it for that. But what they did was they saw the response to it. It did work. It did connect on multiple levels. And that allowed them, the success of Frozen allowed them to go off and try these other these other things, like whether it's Raya and the Last Dragon, uh, you know, or, you know, it's even onward, you know, following the money, the money was there and they realized they could follow it. Yeah, but these stories, but but here's what I'll say about this just from having a five-year-old and a seven-year-old kids don't care about think pieces kids don't want to re-watch a movie because there is an internet article or a buzzfeed piece like this movie connected with kids they saw something they had not seen there's a reason why toy story works and yes you could say oh the advancement of technology sure 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 but my kids don't care about that my kids care about the story and there's look we watched Luca and Soul once. I love Soul. I think Soul is a beautiful movie. Uh, I thought Luca was beautiful too. My kids, not so much. They love Encanto, right? And 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 I can say that like Encanto is a movie that definitely has taken America by storm right now. Uh, it just passed Let It Go to be the highest charting Disney hit since 1995. You know, people are, are in. So yes, you can have, you can you can do everything you're saying. You can say that they manipulate things, that they push things out. Um, but at the end of the day, it's got to work. It's got to work for their core audience, which is kids. And if it doesn't work, it does become one of these things. It's Bolt, you know, a little lesser known John Travolta dog movie, you know. Uh, okay, but Paul, seriously, are you bringing up John Travolta right now just because of the Adele Dazeem controversy? You know that he has explained I've been what happened. Sitting, I've been sitting on that for a while. Is what he's saying is that he just had a slip of the tongue because he's dyslexic? He's saying a lot. In fact, I would say he's kind of mildly blaming somebody else. You uh, you famously or infamously, however you want it, you had this, uh, you mispronounced her name. What happened I know. there? Okay, the truth. Yeah. Not the, not the Chinook helicopter thing. Okay. Yes. 
the truth is, um, I was expected backstage, and it was getting very close to the time I was supposed to go on. And um, suddenly, a page, an assistant to you, grabbed me out of the seat and said, you're on in a, in a minute and 15 seconds or something. He said, really? I said, what happened to 15 minutes? Yeah. They said, well, you know, they didn't explain. Well, later, I found out that my actual page got stuck in an elevator and couldn't communicate to anybody. So then the you know, backup page came to rush to get me. But as I get backstage, I run into Goldie Hawn. Now, Goldie Hawn is charismatic, sexy, beautiful. He's got the amazing thing. And I was starstruck. Uh -huh. I'm starstruck hugging and loving her up and forgetting that I have to go and do this bit. And they said, you're on. I said, Yoli, we'll, we'll talk. You're going to one of the parties? So you go, OK, we'll see you then. They said, oh, by the way, we've changed the, uh, Adina's name to phonetic spelling. I went, but, but what, what, what do you mean? Go. So I go out there, and I get to her thing, and I thought, hmm? <laughs> and in my mind, I'm going, what? What, <laughs> what is that name? <laughs> I don't know that name. <laughs> and it was just phonetic spelling, but I, wasn't, I didn't rehearse it that way. So this was Goldie Hawn's fault. <laughs> I will say, you know, to his credit, yeah, you're like running around backstage, very confused, running into all sorts of people, and suddenly they're like, you're on right now and you are not prepared. Nightmare. I, my heart goes out to Amy, him. Amy, this man rehearsed. He rehearsed. All he had to say was her name. Like, it's like, it'd be like, oh, yeah, someone actually asked me if I uh, wanted a drink. And I looked at you and I said, oh, hi, um, Jason Manzukis. But even worse, because it was like, at least Jason is like a human being. This is like an amalgam. About me. I don't even know. I don't know. I don't even he know says some that. stuff about me like that, that guy. Uh, but like, there's, like, there's an <laughs> amalgam of, of like, I don't even know Adele Dazim. It doesn't even sound like Adina. I mean, I guess it does. I mean, oh, yeah, yeah. I believe that I love the it. Adele Dazim controversy made her more famous. Yes? Yes. Okay, then. At least there's that. And I will say she was really marvelous in Uncut Gems. So if, if, if we would not have had her in Uncut Gems without Adele Dazim, all worth it, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I, I think we could argue, like, the big studio point of view on how they market versus the movie. But I think the movie... Telling a story about mental health and feeling, especially in this world where we do feel like mental health is something that we, people don't talk about that much. And the idea of like having a character who, yes, it's represented through she can't control her anger. She can't control these things. And she's being told to like, you know, conceal it. And she's being afraid of how she could be. And she's living in guilt and shame. Like these are all things that people with mental illness see and feel. And that's such a beautiful thing to have articulated and, and, and beyond the sister story, like I want those stories. I want my kids to see those stories. I want my kids to understand that. So is it maybe duplicitous? Maybe it's manipulative on some level though. It, it's marketed that way. I always think that marketing and the film are two different things. I think that the film has to be good and you can mark. Yes. I don't think Joe and Anthony Russo are like, watch out. I'm putting a gay character in here for you guys. Like I, I, I think that what happened is someone on the marketing team saw that, and it was like, oh, shit, that's our first gay character. Let's go run with that. Like, I don't think they're like Disney's like, hey, put a gay character in there. Oh, um, but, but you know that Frozen claims to have the first gay character. Yes, but that's not, I mean, that's that's Internet sleuthing bullshit. Well, I mean, that, and that, yeah. But they I mean, I'm wondering, like, if people haven't read these articles, like, I kind of want to give people three seconds to see if they could guess. One, two, three. 
Yeah. They say that like uh, Oaken, the guy who runs the lodge where like Anna runs to buy her boots and stuff, the guy who like doesn't want to sell Kristoff any carrots, that Oaken is the first gay character in a Disney film because like when he talks about, you know, families in a sauna, it cuts to like a bunch of men in a sauna with four kids. And it's like Disney's way of being like, he's a gay dad. This is his family. And there's a woman in there, too. He's the male figure is just prominent. And he says, hello, family. And look, I would love to go down that route and say, yes, that's that. But that's the Internet saying that. Like, you could also say, well, the woman next to him or that's his brother or it could be anything. You're right. Like, I mean, I don't want to, like, devalue that it's a movie that is, like, accepting, uh, you know, a gay marriage. I just think that, like, that is not Disney. That is Internet sleuthing. I mean, do you think I don't know. I feel like Disney tries to claim that kind of stuff all the time. As like as deliberate, and it, it just, that's the same I, thing. I though, is like there's a penis in the moon like, and like Lion King, right? I mean, it's the same. No, it's, it's not because they want likes for it. They want to be like people are going to like clapped. that fucking penis. I mean, okay, really, all right, okay. Well, but but, they, but I do <laughs> but I do believe like Disney's not getting out. There's a difference between someone writing an article like, "Is this the first gay character in a Disney film?" versus Disney saying, "Didn't you see?" Oaken is a gay man, but they like, do that stuff with their films. But they didn't anyway, do it with this one. Okay, yeah. Maybe they didn't do it with this one. I hate what sorry, they did with I, the Avengers. I totally right? agree with you. That was so sloppy and weird. And I do believe that the Russos were embarrassed by the amount of press that got. Because what it did was it made it something that they just made casual into a moment that then feels diluted. Because you're like, that's what you, that's that? Uh, okay, like it actually fucks them up because it it takes something that's not supposed to be a moment and makes it a moment. That's my opinion about that that's that fair. scene it, in particular. It's just it's hard for me to let go of my defensiveness around Disney when it comes to stuff like that. Like I get a little prickly with them because mm-hmm. I find their I find the fact that they make inclusivity feel like a promotional stick. I find that really exhausting. You like to watch new stuff, right? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new, because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like Vanderpump Villa, the new docudrama starring Lisa Vanderpump, where first-class luxury meets world-class drama. A new season of The Kardashians starring The Kardashians, of course. And Grand Cayman, Secrets in Paradise, the sizzling new reality show set in the tropical Caribbean. It's all new and it's streaming now on Hulu. Hey, everybody, it's Rob Lowe here. If you haven't heard, I have a podcast that's called Literally with Rob Lowe. And basically, it's conversations I've had that really make you feel like you're pulling up a chair at an intimate dinner between myself and people that I admire, like Aaron Sorkin or Tiffany Haddish, Demi Moore, Chris Pratt, Michael J. Fox, There are new episodes out every Thursday, so subscribe, please, and listen wherever you get your podcasts. Despite my, despite feeling like this is more a, like, product or a bit of, like, keep the kids entertained for two hours than it is, like, a movie that I would put up. Like, if we were putting up, like, a more modern Disney movie, this would not be the one that I would select to, like, go forth. Despite all of that. I do like the sister stuff. I I was actually watching this film kind of through the lens of something I've been reading about a lot lately, uh, which is like um, attachment theory. 
you mm-hmm. been hearing about attachment theory? No, it's like this new way of kind of analyzing your relationships and stuff. It's like mm-hmm. kind of the new self-helpy thing. Basically what attachment theory says in a nutshell is like the way that you had a relationship with your parents and the way that you felt growing up as a kid. Did you get too much love? Were you smothered? Did you feel lonely? Were you empty? Like what did you need is kind of how you duplicate your relationships going forth. And that there's like four major ways of um, your kind of family trauma getting broken down. You could be one of the people who like had great parents and worked out normal. That counts as like one of the four ways. Or you could be somebody who grows up in a way that makes you more avoidant, like you're uncomfortable with a lot of like intense emotions. You get you get a lot of like, I can do it myself kind of personality where mm-hmm. it's like harder for you to get close to people, harder for you to be vulnerable. Or you could be a person who's like anxious and really kind of like needs to please, needs to be around people, needs to engage, needs to make them like you. And I feel like, or you could be an anxious avoidant, which is like the least common one, but the one that I think has the most stress going through in life. A couple of my friends have said that they're anxious avoidance and it's really hard for them. But Frozen breaks apart really neatly into like avoidant versus anxious. I mean, like Anna has been raised in a way where she's like completely anxious, like selling herself to like the first guy who shows her any attention, like desperate for love, like starved and will kind of bend herself in knots in order to have a bond with someone that makes her feel special. Well, because she's been rejected her whole life. I mean, there's a door closed to love. Yeah, literally a door closed to love. Literally a door. And, you know, Elsa has been instead raised to become very avoidant. Like she hasn't been shown a lot of love in a way that made her grow up like, I don't need anybody, which is what I like about the Let It Go number. As as sick of that song as I think most people are in the pop culture, when she comes out and you get to see this like kind of frigid, timid, I must behave properly or no one else will like me. I must execute my duties exactly as I am told that is my only purpose here, the way that she kind of acts when she's getting like coronated to see her put down this weight of how can I behave perfectly to make people love me and just own herself. It is thrilling. It is thrilling in that moment. It's time to see what I can do to test the limits and break through. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. She's a person who's been raised to, I have to go it alone. And that's what the song is all about. I mean, this is a a person who is dealing with anxiety and depression, right? Uh, Anxiety about if I make a wrong choice, I'm going to hurt someone and depressed because she has no one to share her life with. Like she's living in this glass castle all by herself because she can't let anyone in because of this fear that she is going to hurt them and this and the shame. And I think it's a complex theme. I almost feel to your point, you're right. It's not the most compelling, complex story. But I think the reason why it works is because there's so little there to that these bigger themes come out. Like it's it it feels more transparent in what we're trying to do. And the story is actually a lot more streamlined. And I think that's why Frozen 2 doesn't work as well as Frozen 1 because... Well, I, I think that there's a problem with the idea of a, a Frozen 2, but... Yeah. but fro- uh, and it does but, yeah. the whole thing of like explaining all this stuff that this movie made a point of not explaining. Exactly. And and I think that... But I guess what I'm saying is the 
a lack of a very firm story. It's very simple. And it's like, just take it, accept it. it is very Broadway musical. And I think it allows you to get to a more richer emotional place. Uh, I'm not saying that the songs are have the best lyrics. And yes, I know all the jokes about like they use the word like uh, door like a million times and all that kind of stuff. Uh, what is it? It's like, uh, you know, door and anymore uh, do a rhyming couple like, like five times in a song. I'm not saying like, everything is perfect, but I think from an emotional standpoint, it packs a much bigger punch. I mean, I think when, what I love about Jennifer Lee, when she was working and working and working versions of the story, I think it took them like 90 gazillion times to shape this story. You know, I mean, they've been trying to shape this story at Disney since like the 1930s, I think, was wow. the first time that Walt Disney had the idea of saying, you know, he had just done the first three big Disney movies. He did Snow White, he did Pinocchio, he did Fantasia. And he was like, I want to do this movie next. It's like this Hans Christian mashup where we use kind of a frame story to then tell all of these like little bits of Hans Christian Andersen stories, you know, to tell like The Little Mermaid, to tell little bits of like Cinderella. This, this is an idea he had 10 years before he made Cinderella and to tell The Snow Queen, you know, which is the direct inspiration of this movie. You know, in The Snow Queen, if people don't remember that story, like it's basically about um, how the world has been cursed. There's like this bad there's a mirror that's basically like the bad self-esteem mirror, where if you look at this mirror, you only see the worst parts of yourself. You know, it's like a mirror that only reflects what you're really ashamed of. And this like bad self-esteem mirror shatters and the shards of this mirror, they get into like the hearts and the minds and the eyes of people all over the world. And it makes the people on earth colder and it makes them walk through the world kind of hating themselves and only seeing the worst in each other. It's basically like bad faith arguments on Twitter, like the personality disorder is the setup of this like fairy tale. And then what's happening is like, as this is going on and as the world is like in this like cold, miserable, emotional place, there's these two kids who are in love. They're like neighbors on a farm. And then the boy gets a shard in his heart and he decides that he hates everybody, including his girlfriend. And the only person he doesn't hate is this like snow queen who like cruises up and like whisks him away to Finland. And so the bulk of the story, the Snow Queen is actually about his girlfriend trying to rescue him, you know, like going through all these adventures. At one point she gets stuck in this town. That's kind of like a forever summer before she realizes she's like wasting her life and she has to get to her boyfriend. And then she finally makes it to Finland. She finally kisses her boyfriend, his heart melts. And then they return home like this mature couple who's like in love for the first time as like grownups. I mean, it's kind of a female rescue story, which is why I think I also get impatient when we're like, we invented feminism in our fairy tales because like, this is here. This was, this was here, you know, centuries ago, having these like female-driven rescue stories. But Disney couldn't figure out how to make this a movie because it's not incredibly compelling. So they basically just took like the nouns of the title, Snow and Queen, and then tried to figure out how to make it a story. And the brainstorm that Jennifer Lee had that I respect is when she came in, they kept making the Snow Queen character still really a villain. And she was like, what if instead of making this a story of good versus evil, we make this a story of love versus fear and to have love versus fear as like the narrative, you know, because right. Like the world, the world being divided into good versus evil is such a kind of boring binary love mm -hmm. versus fear is a lot more relatable. And well, so and that's I think when that like, this, you know, they make them this, sisters, they make it more complicated, but that, that core I think is what's special. Well, yeah. And I think the idea that, you know, this is where Disney comes in and this is the brain trust that Disney has. I have friends who've, written 
animated Disney films, worked on animated films, like you do a little bit, you watch a little bit, you record a little bit, you go back. It, it's a, it's a constant process. Even when I was doing uh, Kung Fu Panda, like they just kept on rewriting and, and retooling these scenes and you're coming back in like, what's changing? And I think what they're seeing is there are these little things that, that they get excited about and they can and they can change it. They can kind of get in there. It's, and in here, it's like, yes, it's a Snow Queen and the Snow Queen sings Let It Go. But then Disney's like, that's too powerful and, and, and too beautiful for a villain. How can we make her not a villain? And so that note where maybe it is dri- driven by we can't have our villains be this complex actually makes a choice to make a more interesting dynamic. Like, why does it have to be a villain? Why, like, do we need good versus evil? Why don't we just have this other kind of a story? Like this person who feels like a villain, this person who some people think is a villain, but she's not a villain. And I think that that, look, there's a lot of happy accidents that make this movie really interesting. Um, but I do think that this process of, you're right. Like the idea of Disney going, this song's going to be a hit. It can't be the bad guy song. Undercuts what you were saying that this movie was trying to be progressive. And I think they stumbled into it. And then also at the same time says no one had this intention, but it became this intention. And I think as each choice got made, the story gets richer and richer and richer. Once you become sisters and she's not a villain, well, what is this movie? We've never really seen a movie like this before. So we have to create this like weird snow monster C plot that's like yeah okay and we have to whatever. name this snow monster marshmallow so kids aren't scared and you can still buy the plushie I mean but look I, I'm never gonna get on Disney you can never like I don't think you can ever really slam Disney for saying well they are commercialization of their films it's like it's not like A24 by the way A24 who I also love sells a lot of shit too Yes, it's an animated Disney movie. Of course, there's going to be a fucking ride and toys and there should be. That's what it is. Like, it's not fine. I don't I'm I'm not so 90s that I'm like, you're a sellout. It's more just like who what's leading the horse when a project gets put together? That's all. Like, I care about like, what's the guiding star? And I will say a person who agrees with me on this a little Mm -hmm. bit would be Jennifer Lee, because like when she was going to early screenings of this before she was even brought on as a director, her big note on the test screenings was always, and this is her words, kill the fucking snowman, kill him. I hate him. I hate him. She hated Olaf. She hated Olaf, who had been put in there, like, kind of to give, like, as, as she put it, like, quote unquote, safety for the boy audiences that this wasn't going to be too much of a girl flick. Oh, and and by the way, it feels like that. I mean, the really the greatest moment with Olaf and it has nothing to do with the performance. It's just there are some clunky things here that, yes, that make it, quote unquote, like four quadrant. Good for everybody. And I don't think you need that snowman. It's a clunky device. Uh, but I do love that the snowman is able to articulate what love is. I mean, it basically just says, like, you know, loving someone is putting their interests or their needs before your own. Is that true, and do you think? I was. I wrote that down. I wanted to ask you that. <laughs> I and, would ask you that. Um, <laughs> I mean, you're you know, the one who's been in a longer marriage. So I feel like I trust you more than me. Well, look, I think that with my marriage and with my kids, first of all, put my kids first. Absolutely, undoubtedly, whatever is going to be like, I am only as happy as 
my saddest kid, if that makes sense, right? Which is a phrase I think people use. Yeah, because it's like, I want them, like, not to say that everything should be, you know, um, this beautiful, everything is perfect for them, but I, my, my heart is theirs and they want them, I want them to be that. You know, with my wife, my relationship with my wife, she is also, in many ways, that same entity. I, she is my family. There's nothing that I want to happen to her there is nothing that I wouldn't do for her. I will bend over backwards for her. Uh, and of course, and I, I, I know she will too, but I think less about the specifics, but more about like the, I am there emotionally for her 100%. And she is there emotionally for me 100%. And I love her absolutely and unconditionally. And I think that like, that may be love, like unconditionally. And so I don't think it's like, Oh, you'll jump in front of a bullet. Like literally Olaf is like, I'm going to kill myself because I, I, I love you. I mean, that's a very extreme situation. I think it, I think love can show up in a lot of different ways. And I, I think there's a very, there's variations of love, but I, I do believe it's like, I like, I will always and want to always be there for her as like a rock. Like there's something that she can do that would let, like, let that be lost. And I think that that's important. I mean, yeah, in some way, that's a very unwritten out thought, but I think I've uh, articulated it. <laughs> I love that. And you know, when I first heard that line, I was like, that sounds really extreme. Like love is always putting yourself first. Cause I feel like abusive relationships also can feel a lot like yes. that. It, which had that line, that line really alarmed me, honestly. Cause I was like, I don't know about that, man. I don't know if I would copy that, but I will say that I'm glad they didn't kill the snowman because I think that Olaf's number about summer, you know, about like how much he would love to be in summer is the best musical number in the whole show. And like, not just because I feel like the lyrics are the most clever, but because I think it's the most psychologically interesting, to be honest. Mm -hmm. I mean, well, here's the song. Bees will buzz, kids will blow dandelion fuzz, and I'll be doing whatever snow does in summer. Drink in my hand, my snow up against the burning sand, probably getting gorgeously tanned in summer. Like, I think it is of all the songs in the show, like, and I keep saying show, like, I'm just talking about it, like, it's a Broadway thing. Most of the songs in here just tell you exactly what the person is feeling. You know, like, I want to build a snowman, I want to do this, I've got to let it go. Um, and Olaf's song is about like, wanting something and being forcibly ignorant of it and like refusing to acknowledge the truth of what's happening and like the naivete of him there's kind of it, it actually works on two layers and not just like a a steamroller one layer yeah which i say i would appreciate about that and i think in some moments like also like the song that anna has you know where she's like pretending to be in love you know the sandwiches song i think it also does the same thing but i like the olaf one better i don't know i don't know why i'm just gonna be like a josh gad fan on this but while i'm while I'm digging into like the lyrics of Frozen with you, I want to know if you think that this line is a naughty double entendre. As context, this is a line that comes in the Anna song where she's singing about how excited she is for people to come over. She's dancing through her house. She has not, as far as we know, ever met a man in her life who wasn't her dad. And she says this line. For years I've roamed these empty halls. Why have a ballroom with no balls? Finally, they're opening up the gates. <laughs> well, hmm. 
interesting, I guess, from her perspective. Sure. Uh, although I wouldn't say that, like, that's the most uh, attractive part of a man. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> but, I mean, uh, I think, I, 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 I think if we're talking penis in the moon, I think that could be a penis in the moon. Well, all right, let's talk about the other thing that I want to talk about, which is this line. So he's a bit of a fixer-upper. So he's got a few flaws. Like his peculiar brain, dear. This thing with the reindeer that's, that's a little outside of nature's laws. So are they saying that, like, Sven is into, like, bestiality there? I don't know. I mean, look, there's a lot of, like, what's unnatural <laughs> about his relationship with an animal? Like, uh, it seems odd to call that out, that he, is it that he talks to the animal? It doesn't seem like that's... Well, I don't know. I don't know what they're trying to say there. I, I'm confused. I mean, they do really go, kind of go after Kristoff. The line that hurts my feelings is when they say that, you know, blondness is unmanly. When they're like, you know, have you held back your fondness to unmanly blondness? My heart always goes out to like my brothers in blonde. You know, it, movies do not portray blonde men as being like the dashing sex symbol enough. And I feel sorry for them. Also, my my redheaded cousins, my heart goes out to you. Uh, also, my hairless friends, although you have you have been lucky enough to have The Rock doing a lot of work for you guys. Look, I mean, we're we're trying to get this bald community building every day and, you know, we're, we're getting stronger and stronger. And thank God, you know, for Tucci and his doc series, we really were happy about that. And when we had our meetings uh, a couple of weeks ago, you know, we really applauded Travolta for going, um, you know, going that extra distance and getting that tube off. Oh, oh, Travolta. I mean, I, my empathy goes out to him because that is a man known for his beautiful hair. Like that man had the best head of hair. And it's he tried like, to it's hide like, that he didn't have it for such I a long know. time. Well, it's like Fred Astaire. If Fred Astaire like lost his feet, could you blame him? Although, honestly, I think my heart still goes out to Kristoff at the end, even though he maybe sort of gets the girl or like a setup to get the girl. Because like his reward for being there and being like a good, I would say, loving companion to Anna as he gets to be like the ice deliverer to the house forevermore, which seems like such an awkward relationship. Like whenever the girls both turn 21 and they want to get like margaritas, he has to leave the castle to go get them ice. Like that feels very unhealthy. I can see like a Reddit Am I the Asshole thread coming from that relationship don't make him work for you as his reward right Am well I, I mean yeah you know look we all have to we all have to do our things in life you know and and uh, maybe his job is maybe he's happy about that he he actually has a job he when we first meet him he says i have a job that's so hard to do because no one needs it and now they gave him a need he he has fulfilled his goal i mean that's pretty beautiful in a that way. is fair and i guess he is the first main character we really see i like the first number uh, of the of Frozen, the one where you're just, you know, seeing like the ch you first you hear like that kind of chanting music that's in the background. I got really into like looking up the history of, you know, Scandinavian music that they were pulling from to get a lot of like the sound and the tone and the vibe of this like vaguely quasi Norwegian was what they were looking to most. Have you heard a lot of these like original Norwegian folk instruments and, and song tradition like they use in frozen um an instrument called the buke horn which is like a carved out horn that you just use as a horn i guess that's where like horns come from is this horn the buke horn i was playing clips of buke horn the other night trying to find a good one which you're about to hear and when i put it on my cat lost his mind and was so angry oh my god I appreciate that that's in here. I also want to give like a shout out to a type of stinging style they folded in, which is the kulning, 
I don't think I'm pronouncing it exactly right, but you're about to hear it get pronounced in a clip. Uh, this is a type of singing that comes out of women in the fields needing to come up with a specific song that belongs to just them that they use to call their cattle home. So like it's the end of the day, their cows have to come home. They want just kind of their cows to come to their house. So they have a specific song they yell that belongs to them. I'm going to play this clip. This is loud and a little shrill. So just you have been warned. Yeni often shows off her skills at special cooling concerts, like here at this abandoned summer farm in Leksand. So yes, okay, so we're in kind of this land and we have the first number of like these men sawing through the ice. And I really love the way that they illustrate the ice. You know, the kind of ice on ice on ice, the saw coming through the ice. And this these men kind of, singing, you know, about the power of ice right here. I felt like that number is kind of like a Disney throwback to Snow White, honestly. You know, didn't it remind you a little bit of like watching the the dwarves go to the mines to have these like mining men singing about their work mm-hmm. yeah, and singing I love about that it in a way opening. that like sets up the the theme I guess that like ice will you know split apart and break your heart and yeah well yada, yada. I, but this is actually really interesting because I wanted to bring up Snow White in regards to this movie because I think there are a lot of similarities like if you want to look at them as old and new right Snow White is the traditional story of this thing and and there's like I don't know why I th- Maybe it's because we talked about it on the show, but there was something about like looking at these two movies as like bookends. Like this is where we started and this is where we are. And and this is where Disney is going, you know, and to think about Snow White being the first animated feature. They existed in that until 2013. You know, that kind of similar storytelling for. And yes, there will always be. Well, what about that? And what about this? And sure, sure, sure. But truly. They they were so connected to one style of storytelling that there is something, I think, on a base level, they can look at these as companion pieces of the beginning of Disney and the end of Disney as we know it and onto a new version of Disney. Not saying that it's getting rid of everything that it's done in the past, but moving in a different direction. Well, yeah, I mean, Disney goes through all of these like phases that I that I, some of them I like more than others. You know, I know I'm coming across like a Disney hater, which is not true all across mm-hmm. the board. Like, I actually really love the Disney period of the 40s um, when they decide not to make the Hans Christian Andersen film. And like instead, well, you know, is he does Fantasia, which to me might be my choice for favorite Disney film to throw up into space, even though I know mm-hmm. it's not narrative, uh, not overall narrative in the same way. I just, I love that movie. And then he makes his film set in like South America, like Three Caballeros and like Saludos Amigos. I love that period. I think it's a really kooky, strange, sometimes sexy period of Disney where like Donald Duck is like lusting after women. I adore that. But I didn't realize that it wasn't until the 1960s until like 101 Dalmatians in 1961 that Disney cartoons had a script before they started to even do the movie. It was really more just put together through like storytelling and storyboards and talking about it. And what would we do? 
and only by the 60s, only like, you know, for 20 years after they've started making them, over 20 years after, do they start writing a script. Interesting. I did Isn't not know it, that. No, it's such a strange way to work. And it makes you understand like how many versions of Frozen they did before they actually did Frozen. I mean, they just kept reshaping it. You know, they did drafts where like where they finally realized they were going to be related. And after they decided they were going to be related, like they took the time to convene what they called like a sister summit, where they invited all of these women who work at Disney who had sisters to like come in and talk about their relationships with their sisters and figure out like how to really shape that dynamic, which worked really well for uh, Jennifer Lee because she was the younger sister. She had an older sister that she wasn't that close with when she was growing up and they didn't become you know friends until they were older until like they were in their twenties. She said there was a day when she was in her twenties and she was going through one of the first losses in her life. And her sister looked at her like she was a human being, like a grown up for the first time. And she felt in that moment that she became real to her sister again in a way that she hadn't been. Interesting. And, and I, I appreciate that. I mean, I'm an only child, so I can't say, yeah, it's yeah. Do you, do you, do you feel left out as an only child watching this? No, because I think I understand it from a different perspective too, of just wanting to be, you know, be accepted. I mean, there is something just so simple about that, you know, just, and yes, there are different levels to it. And I think that, you know, if you have a sister, there's, you know, I think there's a lot to be said for that, but I think at the, at the, its base level, it's, it's being ashamed of who you are, being embarrassed of what you can do. And I think we can all relate to that. I think we all feel that at points you know, um, not good enough or that we hurt someone and, and we punish ourselves because of something that happened, you know? So I think, yes, while I, you know, I'm, you know, I don't have a sister. I still think this movie works. I think that's one of the things about this movie that makes it so interesting. You know, all these movies that I watch or majority of movies that I watch kids movies, I know you've been watching a bunch too, do revolve around like the death of a parent. And while I would say that that's not impossible, obviously, or uncommon, it is something that I would say a majority of children don't necessarily have that emotional connection to, but yet can put themselves in that place. I was watching uh, Pete's Dragon again with my kids the other day. Um, which I love. That movie is fantastic. I think it's the best uh, Disney live action remake. It's it it really is a beautiful, beautiful movie. But I watched like how it affected my son, my older son, especially. It's like these moments that we. It's the only thing I think that's important, or the only thing that we can like register, or that kids can register as being bad, right? Because they don't even have a, a full conception of the world. But the only thing they can really register is like, what if my parents aren't here? And there is something about that trope that goes into all these movies. Like, and I would argue again that like not everyone has experienced it, but we can emotionally go there. And I think that that like I do think it's an interesting thing that Disney really has not elevated, but has definitely put forward as the parents are dead. The parents are dead. What would you do without your parents? Are you looking for parents? Do you need parents? Like. And I just wanted to talk about that a little bit as well. Like what, like what that does for kids. Cause it does, I, I think, teach them emotions on some level. Yeah. I mean, and you can never say that they invented it, of course, because they're taking it from, you of know, course, Hans yeah. Christian Andersen and like, 
the giant history we have of telling kids scary stories about what it's like to be alone. But I think in that tradition, it is interesting that like the kids stories that have always stuck with people are the ones where you are forced to defend for yourself or where you have a stepmother who's trying to push you this way or push you to die, basically. And how can you, you know, defend your own life? So and so I like it when on the whole, like a kid's movie allows the kids watching it to go through big emotions and not just be reassured that the world is a, is a fine and happy place. Because where else are you going to explore those feelings if not like, you know, safely through the movie, if you're lucky enough to not have to have to deal with them in real in reality? Well, well I think it, it teaches empathy, right, on some level. And I think this movie teaches empathy beyond just the parents are dead or I'm all alone. And it's like it teaches it teaches empathy for yourself the feeling that you have when you're not good enough. It doesn't have to be this major thing in your life. You don't have to have this giant thing happen to you. You can have empathy for the way that you're feeling and feel good about yourself. And I think at the core of this, that's what makes this movie so incredibly special in the sense that, am I talking about putting it up in the space? We'll talk about that in a second. But But I am saying that that, type of empathy is very different. Like we have a lot of stories about picking yourself up by the bootstraps and getting in there and doing it. But this is a movie about being kind to you. And I think that that, that like to me, however they got there, they got there. And that message is really, really important. I think Encanto hits uh, some other themes like that too. Like who tells your story? Who makes up the choice for your life? Soul does that so beautifully. Like you know, this person is going to has the finally has this moment that he's been wanting his whole life and and dies, you know, and and it, was he a failure? Was he not a failure? Like these things about like, go easy on yourself. We have such a, a tendency to to rip ourselves to shred. Like what you said, like looking at a mirror, we look at that mirror of this evil version of us all the time. And I think this movie does a really good job of saying, you are OK, you are all right. So, yes, these songs are saying like, you are awesome, you are great. But I think it's not like off topic. I mean, okay. Are you trying to make me melt a little? <laughs> but I just, you know, I think that that's important. Now, I, look, I, I will say, look, let's just, look, we don't, we don't uh, uh, to fight structure. I don't want to put this in the, to outer space. I'm not like, I'm not fighting for it on that level, but I think it's a very good movie. You like to watch new stuff, right? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like Vanderpump Villa, the new docudrama starring Lisa Vanderpump, where first-class luxury meets world-class drama. A new season of The Kardashians starring The Kardashians, of course. And Grand Cayman, Secrets in Paradise, the sizzling new reality show set in the tropical Caribbean. It's all new and it's streaming now on Hulu. Hey, everybody. It's Rob Lowe here. If you haven't heard, I have a podcast that's called Literally with Rob Lowe. And basically, it's conversations I've had that really make you feel like you're pulling up a chair at an intimate dinner between myself and people that I admire, like Aaron Sorkin or Tiffany Haddish, Demi Moore, Chris Pratt, Michael J. Fox, there are new episodes out every Thursday, so subscribe, please, and listen wherever you get your podcasts. I mean, I, I found myself actually getting a little defensive 
on the behalf of the movie because I found an article from um, right after it came out where like a person who wrote for Time Magazine wrote a whole article about Frozen. Um, and it was about how his five-year-old son is sick of Frozen and hates talking about it at school and has never actually seen the movie, but that he was coming home crying because he was so tired of people talking about Frozen all the time. And so he asked his son, like, why don't you want to even watch Frozen? Why do you hate it? And his son said, quote, it's got like dresses in it. I don't like dresses. And there's like princesses and I don't like princesses. I like cars and trucks things. I don't like a princess near it. And instead of the guy telling his kid, you know, you could stand to expand your mind just a little bit. Um, the dad like really doubles down on his kid's point of view to the point that like he decides that his kid is entitled to get onto a Skype with Kristen Bell, which they do and tell Kristen Bell over Skype that he doesn't like Frozen. And I found myself getting mad because I do find that yeah. like we, that. yeah, we do do a thing in this culture where like stuff that especially girls like is considered lame. And like, I don't like Frozen for a lot of reasons, but I don't like other people not liking it because of girl stuff. Like there's a podcast that just came out called, I think The Big Hit. It's hosted by Alex Papadamus. And it's about things that were gigantic cultural hits and really looking at them from all sorts of lenses. And it's starting with kind of a mini series on Twilight and like the backlash to Twilight and how just anything in the pop culture that is coded as girls are happy about it gets deemed shitty. And like that this five-year-old kid has already adopted this attitude kind of bummed me out. And like his dad even wrote, and this is his dad writing this in the Times. His dad says, I get it. Quote, imagine if the moment it was time for lunch, your coworkers screamed, pretend I am Solomon Northrup and you're all my slave owners for the next 12 years. That is what this writer in Time likened frozen madness like for his wow. son. Really crazy. Really, really, really crazy. And when I was digging around for, you know, interesting videos about Frozen online, one thing that actually did move me more than anything in the movie is that there's a huge culture of girls on YouTube, um, especially at the time, these videos are still around, who would take Frozen dolls and use them to create their own art, that girls were becoming filmmakers and storytellers using the characters of Frozen, you know, to tell their own stories in this world. And they're kind of silly. Like, I mean, they're all actually exclusively silly. Like here's when we're like the kids from Frozen are like in a house and they decide to pull a prank using like pink slime and it, they get pink slime on each other. Super funny. <laughs> Some pink slime would be good up here. Look at that. It looks like, like a slime waterfall. It's <laughs> so cool. That video, by the way, has 248 million views. 248 wow. million views. So there's like a culture of, I kind of, I find kind of folk art that arises out of this. I mean, girls learning editing software because they like Frozen. I am, of course, a thousand percent on board with that. I think that is one of the neatest things to come out of this. You know, I, uh, yeah, I think that like whatever the passion is, and I think we've talked about this before for me, like star Wars was so mind blowing and, and changed the way I wanted to do things and the way I played with my action figures and the way I wanted to like do these stories. You can't fault what kids like. That's a simple, like, like, there are bad things. There are mediocre things that kids like. And sure, like you think that that's whatever, but there are very rarely a without merit juggernaut that all kids like. And I think whenever you have that juggernaut hit, uh, it does make another breed of filmmakers. It, it, like we talk about this a lot, like the taxi drivers and the, the 2001s, 
make the filmmakers uh, or I should say that the, the movies of the 70s make the movie the movie makers of the mid 90s. And we are continually seeing people being inspired and then moving, you know, moving it up a notch. So I, I do think it's important to have these movies that resonate and be a cultural phenomenon. I it think is. it's, yeah, it's cool. It's like, it's cool to have that. And I mean, feel I'd like- rather have that after effect than have Disney tell me how awesome they are. And, 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 you know, to me, I think one of the more feminist things that came out of this exact movie, you know, at the time was like Jennifer Lee writing about her experience in an, in an LA Times op-ed going through the press tour of Frozen. And she said, you know, the question that she has been asked most is what is the hardest part about being a female director? And she says that the truth, the real answer is the red carpet, you know, and that before she did the Frozen press tour, which took her four months, you know, wow. that she, you know, wasn't that into like getting her picture taken. She didn't like dresses, she didn't like heels, she didn't know, like makeup, she didn't know her own measurements. And she didn't realize that unlike men, she can't be photographed in the same thing twice. So she had to get like made over and nudged and pushed all the time. And it was like really exhausting. She was like, I can't cover my shoulders because that looks matronly, but I've been told I can't wear strapless gowns either because I quote, don't have the armpits for it. Um, she said, I am shockingly short-waisted. And yes, when Silas actually used the word shockingly, she was told she can't wear less than five inch heels or six, which is really hard to walk in. Um, and that she's told all the time that they don't make dresses for people her size, but when they try to make anything her size, she should show them how thankful that she is. And that she just was like miserable doing all of this, you know, that at the Golden Globes, you know, it was a really lovely night. She was trying to be there representing, you know, the film. And then she realized that she had to pee and that nobody had considered the fact that she was a biological woman who had to pee when they put her in the dress because they had sewn it on her so tight that she wasn't able to take it off to pee. And so she just had to like, she said, I will spare you the details of how I got through the night, but it involves stopwatches and salts. Wow. This I appreciate because it is like real world talking about how the world is different when you're a woman going through this. I mean, I'm, I'm surprised and also kind of glad that we didn't have to do it. That when Chloe Zhao won um, for Nomadland at last year's Oscars, she very clearly wasn't wearing any makeup on her face. And I have never seen a woman do that at the Oscars. And I was like, that is amazing. That to me is like the kind of quietly radical act that I find really pushing forward, you know, women in Hollywood, you know, not having to play the beauty game. I mean, isn't Frances McDormand kind of rocking that look too? Yeah, exactly. So I feel like the two of them making that film together, it couldn't be more of like a perfect partnership for the two of them. And I think where I get frustrated with this movie or the takes on this movie is when the internet can get on a movie like this and bitch about it being progressive because the truth is, sure, maybe some of this stuff is deliberate or maybe some of this stuff people are a little bit more yeah. proud of than they're letting us know. But that's not a bad thing. That actually moves our culture to a place that is better to see faces and hear stories that we have not seen. When we go, well, the Eternals is just a bunch of actors who are all different colors. Uh, you know, it's like, oh, Marvel's trying too hard. Or in this movie, they're doing that. It's like, okay. I understand on some level your frustration that it feels intentional. But I also want to say that you have to acknowledge how oddly brainwashed we've all been that that does feel intentional because we haven't seen it. 
So when you do make a choice like this, it is shocking. And it's like, wait, oh, wait, there's a gay person. Like, yeah, we have to like, we got to fucking push it in. And sometimes you got to get it in there big. And like, so yes, the progressive films will always get hit on and digged on because it's like, they're trying too hard. They're trying too hard. But it's like, if we don't try hard, then we don't see it. And and it doesn't always mean it's going to work. And it doesn't mean that if you make a film that has progressive values, and I'm not saying politically, but just showing faces, stories that are different, sizes that are different. If we don't, you know, like not everyone's going to be great just because you're doing that, but at least they're going to keep on making them and try to keep on making them. And I think it's unfortunate that the weight of the world is on some of those movies. Like, well, if this one doesn't do good, we'll never make another blank. Yeah, I'm tired of having that gun to my head. Yeah, it's like, no, they can suck and they can be great, but like, let's just make them, like they don't need to, like going back to that Sidney Poitier thing I said, like these movies don't need to be the best. They don't need to be the shot. Like they don't have to be above Hotel Transylvania, Transformania. Like, I, you know what I'm saying? It's like if you can make Hotel Transylvania, ho- trans- <laughs> Transformania, <laughs> like then then you should be able to make another movie that has progressive. Like, like, why are we why are we holding as like, well, if you're going to make it progressive, it better be the best fucking movie ever. It's like, why? Because these other movies aren't why are we hold these things up anyway i mean i don't disagree with anything that you're saying i don't i don't i don't i don't i think just for me the one other thing is just the step where i feel like disney wants me to say thank you just the way that like you know jennifer jennifer lee was saying like when i'm given a dress my size i'm supposed to say thank you like sure it's the thank you that i get irritated with i just I, i and i i just like the doing of the work and carrying on with it I do, too. I I do, too. And I think, unfortunately, we live in a culture where everything needs to be addressed. You know, we have an episode with Brian Cox, and I think, you know, Brian Cox is a fantastic actor who wrote this really interesting book. And, you know, the only thing that people want to, like, take from that book are these great stories about how he slams these different actors. And that's not the book. The book isn't just like like a book of, like, fuck you actors. He's telling these stories, but these, like, little moments get plucked out and And I think that sometimes culturally we have to get in front of things and we, and you're right. Maybe the, the attitude should be not your thank you, but it's like, we have to acknowledge them. If they're being acknowledged, then what role do we take in that? It's like, well, we did this, pat ourselves on the back. It's a hard, it's a, it's a hard line to walk because I think culture wants to say like, oh my God, the first gay character in an Avengers movie. And it's such a letdown because it's not, I mean, it is, it is, but it's not. But yet when they do it in the Eternals and it's much more overt and incredibly focused on the story, that's not a story. So it's like, well, you're highlighting something to actually just cut it off at the knees, you know, which is to say that wasn't good enough. It's like, well, what about the other story that just came out that actually was meant to be that where the Russos are just trying to, I think, just have normal people interacting. I don't think they're like, here we go, because it is embarrassing if you if you show it like that, if you if you. But but that's them normalizing it. And then that's the culture going, well, it wasn't good enough. It's like, it's a tricky battle we're in. I hear what you're saying. And I do agree with you. Like, we shouldn't have to be thankful that they have done this. But I also feel like you're in this weird cycle of like, we need to be acknowledged. We need to call it out. We need to say what we think about it. We need to say it's not enough. We need to say, you know, and it's, it's it's a fine line. And I think that's why you have a lot of people who give up. I don't want to use gender pronouns. It's too hard. And it's like, well, yeah, it is. But... That's the commitment that we make because we actually respect the people that are there. It's like, yes, things are hard. Things are different. They're not easy. 
to rewrap or rewire your head to something after you've been doing it for a long way. But it's like, it doesn't mean we should just immediately reject them or throw them under the bus because someone did make an attempt and someone did try. And yes, it may be clumsy, but at least you're making a try. And I think that that's like, and, and unfortunately, we, I don't think we look, look at things enough like that. Like, but I think, you know, maybe you're right. Disney is taking the attitude of thank us for it. I don't know. Yeah. Well, I can at least say if I was going to try to have more empathy for Disney, then the way I would go about it is I would say also they get it from every single end. You know, they get yelled at from every end because they are the biggest in the world. You know, heavy is the head that wears the mouse ears. Mm-hmm. Um and so they can make Frozen and be yelled at for being like too overtly woke and kind of tedious. And they can get yelled at for making a film that is called Literally Satanic by a pastor who did that on a podcast. I, I don't know if you've heard this, but this is no. him going off on Disney. If I was the devil, I would buy Disney in 1984. Yeah. and That's then, what I would have done. And then you start making all these nice little movies that just throw little things in there that, that make sin look enticing. And, and in fact, the worst, some of the worst of sins make it look enticing or at least to start to indoctrinate slowly. Turn the heat up on the frog in the, in the pan. Friends, this is evil. Just, just evil. I, I wonder if people are thinking... You know, I think this cute little movie is going to indoctrinate my five-year-old to be a, a lesbian or, or treat homosexuality or bestiality in a light sort of way. I, I wonder if, if the average parent going to see Frozen is, is thinking that way. You know, I wonder if they're, they're just walking in and saying, yeah, let's get my five-year-old and seven-year-old indoctrinated early. So I think I'm right about that whole reindeer fucking idea. Like uh, the priest and I are on the same page on that. Ah, Frozen three, baby. Um, I will say too, why I give this movie a lot more runway. I do enjoy it. I'm not going to take away that I enjoy this movie. It's not my go-to, but I enjoy it. I think the songs are great. I wanted to listen to the soundtrack after I was done uh, watching it. But what I will say is that Disney has made a commitment since this movie to do different stories. And to your point, if you connect with Moana, great. If you connect with Encanto, great. If you connect with Raya, great. Yes, they may want to be patted on the back, but they actually are still doing the work. And they're That's making true. a diverse slate of really interesting things. And may, and like we said, Encanto is now that, you know, we don't talk about Bruno has taken over on the pop charts. And maybe this is, you know, that to me is progress. You know, it doesn't mean that this movie has to be perfect. doesn't mean that the next movie that Disney, like, makes sense to be perfect it just means that like they are they made a movie about fucking jazz for kids <laughs> good on them like good on them like come on man <laughs> like uh so like so i just think that like yes there's a lot to say heavy is a head that wears a mouse ears like you said but they are doing the work and maybe it's wonky and maybe it feels self-congratulatory and maybe it feels overt but I don't think the kids recognize that as much as we do because we're looking at it and we're going, bah, bah. but uh, it's cool. Then in my mind, it's cool. <laughs> well, then why don't we read a negative review from that time that does get a bit irritated? This is a, this is a review uh, that was published on RogerEbert.com written by a critic that I love near and dear, very near and dear to my heart, Christy Lemire. And she writes, <clears throat> It all seems so cynical, this attempt to shake things up without shaking them up too much. At least Frozen has the decency to borrow from excellent source material. 
But what she means, like, there's a lot of stuff in here that feels like pastiches of this running away, mm-hmm. the Cinderella of this dropping the glove. I feel like there's there's definitely music cues in here that remind me of Star Wars. It is very familiar. There's a lot of sound of music. We're up on hills spinning around. Snow White. There, yeah, Snow White. It, there's a lot of stuff in here that feels more fashioned together. Uh, I mean, there's even like a thing about Dagwood sandwiches, which I actually enjoy. When like when uh, when Olaf is singing, he imagines people eating those gigantic Dagwood sandwiches. My dream in life is for somebody to just like make me a Dagwood sandwich. There's a great story in the new Mel Brooks book uh, about, oh my gosh, uh, it's a famous writer. Uh, oh, I'm blanking on his name, but he's a very famous writer who loved the Dagwood sandwich. And there's a story that goes that he was walking back to his office uh, from the kitchen and he tripped and he fell and he broke his leg and he was inches away from the phone and inches away from his Dagwood sandwich and he reached for the Dagwood sandwich instead of the phone <laughs> uh, instead of calling for help and I love that oh and God. a Dagwood sandwich is ex- exciting to me let's let's get some Dagwood sandwiches yeah can we do that can we like figure out how to just sit down and eat like a, a 20 layer sandwich I'd be let's so do happy it. okay be deal great. all right deal so, so it's not going to space the sandwich yeah. might be going to space but what do you all think? We want to hear from you on the Discord, too. Like, let's start it up. Let's have a thread. Uh, where does Frozen fall for you? Uh, but I'm glad we talked about this movie. I think it's an important movie. I think so, too. I think so, too. And in our Snowbound series, I mean, this is a movie that really, I think, not only respects snow. I mean, they use, like, I think they would truck in, like, 50 tons of snow a day for the Foley artists to mess with, which you can really hear. You know, what? this. Oh, yeah. Like, I mean, listen to even the snow kind of crunching under people's feet in this, in this, like I'll I'll play a little clip of the audio and like talk about how the Foley people, you know, they realize like there's different types of snows and different types of sound of snows. There's puffy snow and crunchy snow and deep snow and heavy snow and icy snow. You know, they used all sorts of great snow effects here. And they even had like math consultants come in and talk about the illustration of snow. Like that if you squish snow, it gets harder. But if you stretch it, it gets weak and kind of breaks apart. They did all of these models. They created like, I think, 20,000, no, 2,000 types of unique snowflakes. If you look up close at any snowflake, it is a different snowflake shape. This movie loves snow. And I think the snow, snow, to tie it into our whole series, really captures exactly the element of this story. You know, the snow adds so much of a texture to this movie, to this idea about like having your emotions frozen in a way that I think Fargo also did. The snow in there, like carrying like this kind of like barrenness, you know, blank slate frigidity, like people traveling to this really cold world. I would say so far, two official snow movies into our snow series that snow adds a really interesting extra dimension to a film when it shows up, when it is there. With that said, let's listen to some sweet, sweet snow. Cold, 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 Wandering Oaken's trading post. Ooh, and sauna. All right. Well, we have another snowy movie coming up next week that I am so excited about. It is the movie that we have been talking about ever since we did our first Wes Anderson. And I said, you know, I like the Royal Tannenbaums, but the Wes Anderson of my heart is going to be... The Grand Budapest Hotel. This is a banger series, Amy. I'm really excited about this. It is, man. 
Why do you want to be a lobby boy? Who wouldn't? At the Grand Budapest, sir. And so my life began. Junior lobby boy in training under the strict command of Monsieur Gustave H. <laughs> Many of the hotel's most valued and distinguished guests came for him. I love you. I love you. She was dynamite in the sack, by the way. She was 84. Mm, I've had older. This was also when I met Agatha. She's charming. She's so charming. Is he flirting with you? Yes. I approve of this union. I became his pupil, and he was to be my counselor and guardian. The police are here. Tell them I'll be right down. She's been murdered, and you think I did it. Hey! Stop! You're looking so well, darling. You really are. I don't know what sort of cream they've put on you down at the morgue, but I want some. This is Madame D's last will and testament. To Monsieur Gustave H, I bequeath a painting known as Boy with Apple. Wow! What? Who's Gustave H? I'm afraid that's me, darling. If I learn you ever once laid a finger on my mother's body, living or dead... I go to bed with all my friends. We need to make a plan for your survival. Hide this. It's in code and you might need a magnifying glass to read it, but it tells you exactly where and how to find Boy with Apple. I'm a baker. I'm not a fence, if that's the term. I want roadblocks at every junction for 50 kilometers. I want rail blocks at every train station for 100 kilometers. Get in! I want 50 men and 10 bloodhounds ready in five minutes. You can't arrest him simply because he's a bloody immigrant. Take your hands off my lobby boy! Have you ever been questioned by the authorities? Yes, on one occasion. What, what? I was arrested and tortured by the rebel militia after the desert uprising. Right. Well, you know the drill then. Zip it. All right. Grand Budapest Hotel, you know the drill. You can find that movie anywhere. And I am so excited to talk about my beloved favorite Wes Anderson movie with you, Paul Shear. Well, I cannot wait. Uh, what a pleasure. Amy, uh, on to Grand Budapest Hotel. That's all for today's show. And remember to rate and review this show. Tell people about it. It really, truly helps. A big thank you to our super producer, Josh Richmond, and our audio engineer extraordinaire, Devin Bryant. Thank you guys for making this show sound so amazingly great. And our MVP behind the scenes, Molly Reynolds, for making sure that this show runs on time and that we have our research at hand. I also want to give a shout out to Kim Troxell for her amazing art. And if you want to keep this conversation going, please do so at discord.gg slash Paul Shear. There's an unspooled section there where we have debates and votes and polls. We also have our Facebook group, the Unspooled Podcast Facebook group that is still an amazing place to be. I want to give a huge uh, shout out to everyone in all those forums for keeping these conversations going. And I also want to let you know that you can head on over to tpublic.com to check out our Unspooled merch. That's right. Go to tpublic.com slash stores slash unspooled to see what we got in the store. And that's all. We'll see you next week on Unspooled. Unspooled. 